Well, we're going to, as I mentioned in the prayer, it, this morning is a, an old-fashioned gospel message, all right? So if you haven't heard one in a while, here's what it's going to look like. But we're going to walk. We're in the Gospel of Mark. So if you got your Bibles open up there, uh, phone, whatever you use, and, and turn to it. We left off last week with this question. I want to come back to it because you may have had more time to ponder it. Do you remember the question was, in our wilderness... And our wildernesses are subjective and sometimes real. It depends what stage of life and where we're at in life. But in our wilderness, do we curse or do we sing? And you may have had a chance to process that this week and run into some actual things that challenged that and got you to wrestle with that. But I, I want to suggest that for the Christian, uh, joy is a way of life. Joy is a choice. And you have to choose it in the midst of the things that you run into. And life can surprise us. Uh, we can be going along well and then something happens and it flips the entire paradigm on its head. And so um, aware of that and aware there's many of us, I wanted to come back and just say um, Jesus was driven into the wilderness. And it says he was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And we found that the wilderness, the, the hardships and the deprivations that come from us often lead us to cursing instead of singing. I, more than, maybe a better word instead of cursing for us would be grumbling. Right? You ever grumble and mutter? Right? Just mutter, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble. Right? We, we tend to be in that line more. We'd understand it more. And so I've tried hard to mentor us that joy is a choice. That in the heat of that, you've got to refocus on the Lord and you've got to make your joy in Him. Uh, despite the circumstances. And I just want to note that in the gospel here, Jesus uh, passed his test with flying colors and that it's important that we do so as well. So moving on, it now begins. Jesus steps out into the world stage announcing his ministry and Mark paints the picture of his entrance this way. It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The phrase that uh, John was arrested is an important one uh, because Jesus later in his ministry would have to deal with this very same person. Uh, Jesus called him the fox, which meant he was known for his cunning ways. Uh, John's ministry was powerful but short. Uh, as a forerunner and announcer of Jesus' ministry, John's role was also very specific. He was the preparer. He was the one who was ready to 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 the heart turn the heart of a nation so that and prepare them so when Jesus came they'd be ready to receive him. John's clearest identification, if you look in Scripture, uh, goes back to the Old Testament to Elijah. And if you've never read. Uh, the story of Elijah. I encourage you to go back and read the story of Elijah. It's an incredible story. But to show you the importance of Elijah, Elijah was one of only two people who were translated alive into heaven. Translated means they were taken up. The other one was Enoch. All right, so you have Enoch and Elijah, the only two people that were taken alive into heaven. Uh, well, of course, three if you include Jesus, but that's cheating. All right. So Elijah and Enoch, and uh, Jesus links John's ministry to Elijah's ministry and, and says of John, of those born of woman on earth, none is greater than John. 
So John is a really significant person in the pantheon of heroes of faith and those who uh, God chose to use. Uh, he was to call the nation back to their first love of Yahweh. All right? And in the process of doing this, he got in trouble with this uh, group called the Herods. All right? And the question is, who were the Herods? So let's take a look at this this morning. Here's a simple graph that can get you to kind of understand that there was a bunch of them. Uh, but from both a biblical and a historical perspective, it's important to understand who the Herods were and kind of how they worked. They were, Herod is a surname, uh, like Mitchells or Chu or uh, Schroeders or Fallons or Henrys, or, right? So it's a surname. And so this was, they were uh, Idumean stock. Uh, what that means is they were from the line of Esau. And if you know anything about the history between the Jews and the Edomites, it was a very contentious, fractious relationship. And uh, so this family ruled in and around Jerusalem in that area during the time of Jesus' life. Uh, as I mentioned, they were mortal enemies of the Jews. And so the Romans knew this. The Herods were kind of a blend of mixtures of several different things, and uh, partly Jewish, partly Edomite, um, kind of deal. And so the Romans use this division for and to its their own purposes, right? And so they placed the Herods as kings over the Jews. So you can understand why that was so ir- irksome and loathsome to the Jewish people. It's like, you have got to be kidding. Um, and, uh, and so the Jews called them half-breeds and they disdained them, right? But they couldn't really do much about it because Rome had put them in power. So now there's a lot of Herods. But for our purposes this morning, uh, you only have to know a couple of them to understand the context. So the first one, the top one there, Herod the Great, is the one that we first encounter in Scripture. Uh, He's the one that the Magi came to and uh, inquired, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We just came through Christmas and that's that Herod. He's also the Herod who sent and killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. He's also the Herod who rebuilt the Jewish temple. Uh, So when Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, the Jews retorted to him and said, it's taken 46 years to rebuild this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days? It's that Herod. He he loved big building projects and and all that kind of stuff. And this Herod quite simply was a monster. Uh, We won't go into detail, but uh, Caesar Augustus, made the remark that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's palace than one of his children. And that's because Jews didn't eat pork and thus they wouldn't kill a pig. Right? He, he was a slaughterhouse and he was a violent man and a crafty man and a shrewd man and an evil man. Uh, you can look him up. You can discover a lot more about him. But for our purposes today, he had four children. You can see him up there on the screen, Aristobulus, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and then Philip. So after Herod's death, what happened is that his kingdom was broken up into four regions or sections, uh, very much like Alexander the Great's kingdom was broken up into four regions upon his death. And his sons, who ruled these areas, were then called Tetrarchs. And so we run into these uh, characters into, into Scripture. Aristobulus, the first one there on the list, is important to us this morning because of who his children were. If you follow the lines and look down, his children were Herod Agrippa I, 
Uh, we run into him in Scripture as well in the book of Acts. And then Herodias, his daughter. And I'll show you in a minute why that's important. Archelaus, the second brother, was the brother who reigned in place of his father in Jerusalem. So when Herod the Great died, Archelaus took over. And this is the Herod that when Joseph was bringing Mary and, and the baby Jesus back from Egypt, uh, he realized Archelaus was reigning in the place of his father and didn't feel it was safe to go there. And so that's why they went north and headed up uh, in the region of Galilee and went to Nazareth instead. Uh, the next one that we're going to look at here, this is where it really gets interesting. Apparently, Herodias was a looker. And so Philip, the brother uh, over there on your far right, married her. In case you didn't make the connection, Herodias was his niece. Right? But it doesn't stop there with the Herod. So Herod Antipas, the third brother, often stayed in their palace and he stole Herodias, who was his niece and his brother's wife, and took her for his own wife. Right? So Peyton Place has nothing on this kind of stuff, right? Daytime soap operas. Uh, this is the situation in which John the Baptist was proclaiming then publicly, it's not lawful for you to have her, i.e., if you claim to be a Jew, obey the law. Uh, this wound John up in prison and his eventual beheading. So this is the context then, as you're looking up on the screen, this is the background of what's going on. This is the environment that John... Uh, ministered in his life ended with and then jesus walks into so when it says after john was arrested all of that is captured in that in that statement so now that we understand the context let's move on to what comes next it says this now after john was arrested jesus came into galilee the torch had been passed from john to jesus as john said he must increase i must decrease and so we have it. Jesus came into the region of Galilee. We're going to take, let's just take a look at a map here, just so we get it in our minds what this looks like. This is the northern part of Israel. And if you look, you can see the Sea of Galilee there. Uh, you can also see the Jordan River south of this map. On the right-hand side, would, right along there, would be uh, Jerusalem. But in the north here, there's a number of cities that you'd recognize, like Nazareth is the home where Jesus grew up. That's the place where Jesus was. He grew up in the hill country, it says, of uh, Galilee. You see Canaan up there. We recognize Cana from what? That's the place of Jesus' first miracle, right? And that's it. You see Magdala there. Magdala, uh, we are familiar with it as a place where a certain person came from. We call her Mary Magdalene. Or Mary from Magdala. And that's the woman that Jesus, is she prominent in the gospel stories? And Jesus cast seven demons out of her. That's where she came up. You can see Gesenaret there. That actually, the Sea of Galilee was known also as the Lake of Gesenaret. And that's the town on the coast. So the town and the lake had the same name at one time. And Jesus there. Capernaum is famous with a number of the gospel stories that Jesus ministered in. And you can also see Corazon there and then also Bethsaida. So most of Jesus' ministry, if you're looking at it, uh, occurred on the west and the north side of the Lake of Galilee. And I just thought it would be really good to have that picture 
in our mind as we go through the rest of the gospel because you'll see all these different uh, names uh, pop up uh, in in these stories here. So this is the context of Mark's gospel. So come back to the verse then. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. I want to stop right here. Proclaiming the gospel of God. That's a different way of saying it. We usually say, well, it's the gospel. Uh, the Expositor's Bible Commentary points out that this is an important delineation because it says, it, it underlines the fact that God is both the source and the object of the gospel. In other words, he's the producer of the good news, but he's also the object of the good news. So Jesus is the good news, right? So he's both the source and the object of it. So he created it, but he's who it's about. And then the timing of the good news is important. The timing here, it says the time is fulfilled. It means now. Jesus said the time is fulfilled. This fullness of time idea is, is a big theme in both the Old Testament and the New Testament we don't have enough time to go through it deeply this morning, but just to highlight it a little bit and get a taste or flavor for it, what does it mean that the time is fulfilled? Well, there are earthly periods of time, right? We're familiar with calendars. We're familiar with epochs or uh, periods of history. We've all taken history classes and that kind of stuff. But what this is emphasizing is that there are uh, periods of time that are measured not by human calendars, but rather by kingdom calendars or kingdom events. Genesis uh, 15 uh, is one of these. This is a story of Abraham. God was speaking to Abraham. Actually, his name was still Abram at this point. And he says this, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God is telling Abram ahead of time what's going to take place in the history of the line that would become his people, his descendants. They'd be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age. So God highlights in Genesis 15 this fact right here. He says, they shall come back in the fourth generation. And he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I like the old version of it in some of the other uh, translations where it says the cup of the Amorites is not yet full. So there's a human calendar uh, that, that's playing along here, right? There's a human calendar going, but there's also a kingdom calendar and God is looking for the cup of the Amorites to fill. When the cup of the Amorites fill, that's when all this will happen and in this particular sense, the Jews will be led out of Egypt and then they will come into the promised land. So there's an, an earthly time frame, 400 years, that runs along with a heavenly chronology, the cup of the Amorites is not yet full. And we see this all over in Scripture. There's all kinds of, there's the human history side of it, and then there's the God time side of it. Uh, likewise, in Scripture, it's clear that Jesus didn't just show up at any willy-nilly time. 
what Scripture is very clear is that Jesus showed up at the exact right moment in history. Okay, now why was it the exact right moment in history? Because God said it was the exact right moment in history from his perspective. Would it have been our time? Would we have picked that? Probably not, right? But Scripture says that God wasn't measuring it that way. He was looking for the exact time when it would be right in terms of the court of heaven for Jesus to appear on the face of the earth. It's called the fullness of time. Uh, it, this tone is kind of, if you want to capture the tone, remember the Lion King? Remember, right, Mufasa died and then uh, Simba goes AWOL, right? And then you have Rafiki sitting there doing all the shaky thing. And he looks in the thing and he goes, it is time, right? right? That, it carries that sense. There was something going on. They didn't even know Simba was alive. And suddenly it is time, right? And that's what kind of heaven's saying when Jesus shows up, it is time, right? And there, it, it's the culmination of history in terms of, everything the Old Testament had spoken about. So here's what Jesus is saying in, in a kingdom sense. It is time. The moments highlighted, uh, you can find this in the New Testament in several different places. Let me give you two this morning that you can kind of go and look. This is found in Galatians, Paul is describing. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. In other words, God says it's this fullness of time. It's the exact right moment. Uh, So the fullness of time is more than just a kingdom of God thing. It's also an earthly calendar thing. In the book of Ephesians, you can see this idea highlighted again. Uh, Paul says this in in chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. This is the effect of what happened when Jesus showed up. He came to die for our sins, to forgive us of our trespasses. I don't know about you, I needed that very badly. Okay? I don't know about you, I still need that very badly. Okay? If you don't need that, you may not need Jesus. But I needed that very badly. Right? And I still need that very badly. And so when it says he came for the forgiveness of our trespasses, I'm going, amen, yes, hello, that's me, hi, I, I agree, okay, I buy that. All right. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, because what's very clear to God is very foggy to us half the time. Right? You ever wrestle with God's timing? Right? And I, I just always seem to be ahead or behind. Uh, the, the moments I have been right in step with him have been awesome and few. Right? So the mystery of his according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for, and what does it say there? The fullness of time. God's trying to get us to understand that he controls time. That he controls epics. He controls eras of history. He controls what gets rolled out. He controls the plan. And he's saying, I want you to understand something. Christ came at the exact right moment in what's called here the fullness of time. For what? To unite all things to him. Things in heaven and things on earth. 
So this fullness of time would usher in another uh, phrase that we're familiar with, what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. Jesus makes a startling proclamation when he comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, for us, we'd go, well, of course he did that because he's Jesus. But if you look from a Jewish perspective, that would be absolutely stunning. That would be shock value off the charts. Okay? That would be like the Cleveland Browns winning the Super Bowl. Okay? It would just rock the world. I mean, it would be so counterintuitive, they wouldn't have a category for it. That he would walk and say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, For the Jew, the kingdom of God was the realization of God's role, God's rule on earth. Uh, Their exaltation as a nation, they would be placed back in first place again. Uh, Their enemies would be put down, so they had visions. If somebody came and said that, they were going to throw the Romans into the Mediterranean Sea. And faster the better, right? They wanted to get rid of them. And their rightful place is Yahweh's chosen one. So when Jesus came and announced that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and John's ministry had preceded it, you can imagine the buzz that is taking place in that area of Galilee. Like, what is this? What's he really saying? Who who is he claimed to be? And they were just trying to figure this all out. Uh, it would probably carry kind of the same connotation as it would for us today when we talk about Jesus' second coming, right? Think of what we think of at Jesus' second coming. When, when we think of him coming back, um, all would, will be made right, right? Jesus is coming back. Whoa! And when that really happens, man, it's going to drop kick everything else out into the middle of next week, Right? It's going to be game over. And we'd be going, whoo! Right? Won't we? <laughs> Just seeing if you're with me. There we go. So, so Jesus' statement on this is really bold, and Jesus' statement is really dangerous. A talk of kingdoms and kings wasn't taken lightly by the Romans, and we find out later that they didn't like that at all. And, uh, but it was the next phrase that really that he uttered that really stunned. Coming back to this, it says this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is not what you'd expect him to say. That's what? Repent and what? Repent and believe the gospel. If we were to translate that exactly, it would read, repent and believe in the good news. Well, who wouldn't want to believe in good news? Right? We all like good news. Seems like a oxymoron, right? Like, repent and believe the good news. Why? I like good news. I would want good news. It, the gospel is good news. It's the very best news ever to come in the hearing of mankind. Uh, again, quoting my commentary, they're quoting Albert Schweitzer. It says, with the coming of Jesus, God was doing something special. He, Jesus, marks the fulfillment of a special salvation time. Theologians like to talk that way. Okay? He marks the fulfillment of a special salvation time which is distinguished from all other time. 
The coming of Jesus is called the fullness of time. It's different than any other event in the history of the world, past or future. And because of this, action is called for it. He, Jesus lays us out. He says what? Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, let's look at that word repent. You've heard the Greek form of it before. It's called metanoia, right? It's called a change of mind. The idea there is that if I'm uh, doing the wrong thing or I'm going the wrong way, I need to change my mind. If I want to go to Vancouver, I get in the car with Pam and the Burb and we head, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in Chehalis and we realize, oh, Vancouver, B.C., not Vancouver, Washington. Oops. Does it make any sense to just say, well, we'll just keep driving and hope we hit it? No, what would you have to do? You'd have to pull off, probably stop at a 7-Eleven, get a Slurpee or something. Why? Because now you not only have to make up all the time you just did driving the wrong way to get back to here, Mill Creek, but then you have to make the original mileage you were supposed to make heading to Vancouver, B.C. And that process for us is loathsome. We hate that idea. We do not like it. And for many of us, when it comes to this area, we just keep driving. Maybe God will pick us up somewhere on the freeway and we'll magically get there, but I'm not turning around. Got it? There's this stubbornness in us. There's this mule kick side to us that just doesn't want to admit we've done something wrong. So we just keep moving. And we don't stop and we don't repent. And so in this context, Jesus is saying something very specific when he's talking about repentance, because repentance is the process of cooperating with the Holy Spirit to turn from sin and turn towards God. It's the idea that I literally turn around. I turn my mind. Uh, we would use phrases like, I soften my heart. I quit fighting. I quit resisting. If I'm, if I'm doing this thing, I drop this. I let them, I let them in. And so Jesus says... What he's saying is, when he's saying this, he's saying, turn from your sin of unbelief and believe in me. Turn towards me. And all the stories in Mark's gospel are used as evidence for why we should do this. So Mark doesn't tell all the stories, then you get to the end and he tells you this. He starts with this. And then he tells you all the stories. Now, remember who John Mark was. Why would he do that? Because he kind of had that experience, right? For John Mark, he realized, wow, repentance was a big deal. It took John Mark a while to figure it out. And so he puts it right at the beginning of his gospel. All these stories are used to convince us that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And the stories are designed to convince. They're not just stories. They are specific episodes, and we'll go through them that are designed to convince you that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the son of the living God, that the time has come, it is fulfilled. Now is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is located in him. And so repent, believe. And it's designed to move us. The stories are not written so that we sit there and go, hmm, good story. Nice book. Interesting. Clever. Wow. 
Okay, on to the next thing. They're not designed that way. They're designed to create what I call a fulcrum point. I talked to my mom and uh, it snowed about 10 inches in Sugarbush. And so uh, the snow plows go down the road. And when those snow plows go down those roads, they have the big V ones. Uh, the snow goes one way or the other. It doesn't stay in the middle of the road. And these gospel stories are designed to create the exact same thing. They're designed to create a fulcrum point that pushes you either towards Jesus or away from Jesus. They are designed to engage our belief that Jesus, in God, has, in Jesus, God has come close to us. God has spoken. God has given us a message. God wants to communicate. He wants to connect. He wants us to respond. He's not just looking for intellectual assent. He's looking for us to move towards. We are therefore then to repent and believe the gospel. That is action. That means I move towards him. And this is the precise place where we can be oh so close, but miss it. I know this in my own life. I, I grew up in a church. I knew all about Jesus. I knew all about uh, his cro- death on the cross. I knew all about his life. I knew all about his resurrection. And I completely missed it. Okay, Completely missed it. I knew all about it. I didn't know him. And I think that's a common error in, in our world today. And when, when we sit among us and we all gather, there'll be a whole other service. And uh, the question is, who of us knows about him and who of us actually knows him? And that's a huge gap, even though it can be really close. And we can be in immense danger and not even know it. What's the danger? Well, the danger is of knowing about Jesus but not actually knowing Jesus. Not actually having a relationship with Him. Jesus, right here in the beginning of His ministry, is telling us to repent. Don't believe about me. Believe in me. Put your weight on it. Believe in me. Acknowledge who I am. Surrender to my authority. That's all implied in there. Cry out to me would be another way to say, cry out to me and confess your sins. Call out to me and ask me to save you. Ask me to come into your life. And scriptures say, if you do that, you will be saved. In the old King James, it was thou shalt be saved, right? John uh, does this really well in 1 John. He amplifies this in a way that's really clear. It says, This is he who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Now, that may be convoluted language for us, but let me put it in real simple terms. Jesus was Spirit, but he was born on this planet like one of us, like a human. And so he came through the water and the blood. And that's why John is saying these three testify the spirit, the water, and the blood. It is a confession of God becoming man. God becoming like us. God so he could talk to us on our level and we could understand him. And therefore, it's saying, therefore, since Jesus, who was spirit, came by water and the blood, we who were born by water and the blood, what? Must be born again into the spirit. 
And that's why John says this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So John is saying, just like Mark is saying, this is God's testimony. This is God's gospel. This is his good news. I have sent help. Will you respond to my help? That's what he's saying. I'm going to ask the men, would you begin to distribute communion right now and we'll, we'll keep going as you pass communion. Let's look at First John a little farther. That was 6 through 9. Let's look at 10 through 12 here. John goes on to say this, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. A testimony is a form of validation. It's a form of truth. It's a form of witness. Uh, in the old days, they'd say, anybody got a testimony, right? And it would be a story, a, a, a witness of what had been preached, of what was true or what the pastor had talked about. So whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony. Thanks, Howard. He's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Very specifically. Scripture said it is God's testimony that Jesus is his son. That it is God on this planet. That it is God's validation of that. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So he's bringing that together. And whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so John draws a line the same way Mark's going to draw a line. He draws a line and he says, those who know Jesus have eternal life. Those who know about Jesus don't. Knowing about him is not good enough. Knowing the details of his life, knowing that there's four Gospels, knowing that um, he died on the cross, knowing that he rose again is not enough for eternal life. You have to have the testimony in you, God's testimony placed inside of you. And so it's not enough to know about him. We have to know him. And the way you know him is that you call out to him and ask him to come into your life. It can be here this morning. It can be when you go home. It can be any time. But basically, it's this, Lord Jesus, I believe what Steve was preaching about when I heard about Mark. And I believe what he's preaching about when I heard about First John. I believe your testimony is in your son. You know what? I need to commit to that. I need to commit to you. I need to ask you to come into my life. Could you forgive me my sins? A great way to put that in Americanese, would you forget my bitter, forgive my bitterness and my resentment? Boy, we carry around that, truckloads of that stuff. Let it go. How do you let it go? You let it go in Him. And John is saying, if you have that, when Christ comes into your life, you know. Okay? I can tell you in my life, it was a very significant deal, and I know the moment that Christ came into my life. It was in that powdered milk tractory at three in the morning, standing in three feet of powdered milk. That's not your story. Yours is something else. But the question is, do you have a story? Do you have a testimony of knowing him? Or have you just always been around it? 
And you've been around it so long that you're convinced you're in, but you aren't really in. That's the scariest place in the universe to be. Because when you get to heaven, God's not going to ask you, were you always in church? And he's not going to ask you, did you have Christian friends and did you do Christian things? He's going to ask you, did you know my son? He's going to know from the beginning because he's going to look at you. And he'll know the testimony is within us. And so this morning, when it says whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life, we want to pause for a minute before we come to communion and ask the very simple question, do you have the Son? Do you have the testimony in you that you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You believe the gospel about Him is true. Because if you don't, then it doesn't make any sense to take communion. Does that make sense? Communion is I'm in relationship with Jesus. And communion is the symbol that says I'm in relationship with Him. It says that I've appropriated His death on the cross. I believe He died for my sins. I also believe He rose again from the dead. And therefore, I can take these elements because it's the picture Jesus left us at the Last Supper. And it's the picture He gave us to always remind us that we're in Him and that's the most important thing about our life. Most important thing about our life is not the junk we own. It's not the stuff we do. It's not who we're connected with or who we're not connected with. The most important part of our life, the most important thing of our life is that we know Jesus. And our culture is looking the other way. There will be billions of people today watching a set for a game that we will make as the supreme event in sporting history uh, in the world. Do you think that's going to really matter when Jesus shows back up? If you don't know Him, I don't know who I'm talking to, but if you don't know Him, if you know about Him, you've not yielded your will to Him. You, you know you're holding on to stuff and you've got to let it go. Today would be a great day to do it. You can do it right now. Would you just join me in prayer? Let's, let's pause for a minute. I don't know if I'm talking to anybody. As far as I know, we're all believers. That may or may not be true. You know, and God knows. Lord Jesus, if there's someone here who knows about you, but doesn't know you, Would you speak a word into their heart right now about the importance, the significance of them closing that gap with you? You said repent and believe in the gospel. Lord, you're the gospel. May they turn right now, repent and believe in you, put their faith in you, put their belief in you, put their weight in you, ask you to forgive their sins and cry out to you to save them. And the symbol you gave us, Lord, was bread. Why is that possible? Because you died on the cross for our sins. Your body was broken. It was crushed for us. You took the hit 
that was supposed to be ours. And we recognize how much we owe you in that. You said at the Last Supper, eat this in memory of me. You also did something for us, Lord, that is very different. We wouldn't probably do it ourselves. You shed your blood for us. We know in the Bible, the Bible says, the life is in the blood. Your blood was shed as a covering, as a propitiation for our sins. You also said that you wouldn't drink it again until you came back, which we know you rose, and we know you're coming back. We want to be ready. May we be found in you. And you said, drink this in memory of me. If the worship team would come forward. While they're coming forward, let's pray. Let's pray. Just pause for a minute. You don't have to pay attention to the stage. You know what they're doing. You've been here many times. Repent and believe in the gospel. Some of us have known Jesus for so long, that's just words. We don't really have the reality of that anymore. But it's pretty simple. Lord, what's between me and you? What, what, what do I need to repent of? For some of us, it's unbelief. Some of us have gotten very skeptical, very cynical, very jaded. And we have suspended our belief in Him. Lord, would you open, help us open up the faucet again. Help the flow of your Spirit go through our lives again. Lord, some of us are tracking really well and in our hearts are going, yes, yes, yes. Some of us are a bit frozen. Knowing we should move, knowing we should repent, a little bit stuck, we need help. Lord, would, would they talk to somebody this week? Talk to myself, talk to Shannon, talk to Rob, talk to one of the staff, talk to one of the elders, talk to their family, talk to their posse. Help unstuck us, Lord. Help us to repent and believe fully in the gospel. And we ask this in your name. Amen.